You're awake now, so I'll say good morning again. That's, it's, good morning. It's good to have you back. I, uh, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. We all hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Um, I, I know that, that some of you spend time uh, sitting around the table, sharing things that you're thankful for during the Thanksgiving meal, and, and, uh, and I wanted to do that same thing this morning. I'm particularly thankful for a text that I received from uh, one of the ladies in our church, whom we'll call Sam, because, well, that's her name. And she sent me a text the day before Thanksgiving to say that she was, she was searching the internet uh, for recipes for mashed potatoes, but her spell checker corrected the search to, to recipes for mashed pastors. Uh, so I, I just want to say that I'm not sure how many <laughs> recipes for mas- mashed pastors she found, but I am particularly thankful this morning, and have been since then, that she decided not to use any of them. This morning, we'll be continuing our studies in the book of James in a series entitled Advice from a Brother You Can Trust, and this is part 34, The Prayer of a Righteous Person, and we'll be looking at James chapter 5, verses 13 to 18, and the advice that James will give us there. Last week, could we bring up the lights a little bit? I'm suspicious that there are people out there. Yes, there you are. Uh, Last week, we unpacked James chapter 5 in verses 9 to 12, and we looked at that passage through the lens of a story about a man named Job. Job was a man who became legendary for his perseverance in the face of cataclysmic trials. If you were here last week, and then you know that it takes a long time to tell the story of Job. You see, Job was a righteous man who had deep reverence for God, and, and shunned evil. He avoided evil at all costs. God, in turn, had seen Job's faithfulness and had great respect for Job. It was a mutual relationship that they had. And in fact, one day when Satan presented himself to God there in heaven, uh, God asked Satan if he had noticed Job during his travels all around planet Earth. And Satan said that he was well aware of Job and his faithfulness to God and then added in his diabolical opinion Job was only faithful to God because God was so good to him. God was constantly protecting him. Satan had indicated, he indicated that he had tried to get at Job, but found that consistently impossible given the fact that that God had built this impenetrable wall around Job. And that was when Job became a, well, a pawn in an extraterrestrial chess tournament between God and Satan. In essence, God challenged Satan to two games of chess. Because Satan had claimed that the only reason that Job revered God and avoided evil was because God constantly, constantly protected him. And, made it, and that made it impossible for Satan to get at him. Satan then went on to say, you remember in the conversation, that if God would just give him the opportunity to take everything away from Job, then Job would certainly curse God to his face. God gave Satan permission but remained in control in Job's life by telling Satan that he could take away everything that Job had, but he was not to touch Job himself. Satan's blitzkrieg attack on Job was ruthless. He took away all of Job's wealth and killed all but four of Job's servants, and he also took the lives of all of Job's children. By the end of that day, Job was heartbroken, but Job did not curse God to his face. Instead, Job chose to worship God in the midst of that terrible pain. Satan was forced to admit defeat in that first round and to acknowledge that it was God who had been right about Job all along. 
Then there came that day when Satan presented himself before God again, along with all the other angels. God pointed out to Satan that he had been wrong about Job when, he, when, when they had first talked, this challenge that Satan had put out, put out. Job had not cursed God and had chosen to maintain his integrity, even though he faced such terrible loss. Satan complained that the first round of testing had been unfair because, as you recall, in that first round, God had told Satan that he was free to take away everything that Job had, but he wasn't supposed to touch Job himself. Satan went on to say that that Job's physical well-being was more important to him than anything that he had or anything that he owned. And Satan contended that if he were to be allowed to go after Job himself, to strike Job physically, then Job would curse God to his face. Once again, God remained sovereign in Job's life and told Satan that he was free to strike Job physically, but that he wasn't allowed to kill him. He forbid him. He ordered him not to kill Job. Satan struck Job with painful sores that infested his body from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. And Job was in such pain physically that he sat in the ashes of a cold fire and took a broken piece of pottery and just scraped his skin. And his wife came to him to say that he should let go of his integrity and just just curse God and die, she said. Job responded by uh, telling her that she was talking like a foolish woman. He didn't call her a foolish woman, gentlemen. He said she was talking like a foolish woman, probably some other woman that he knew. But she was talking like a foolish woman and, and then added that, you know, if we're going to accept good from God's hand, that we should be willing to accept trouble when God sends that instead. And Satan had lost the second round. Now remember, Job had done nothing to deserve what happened to him. Even God himself said that to Satan, that Satan had incited God against Job to ruin him without any reason. Those were God's words. So Job was very confused as to why he had to go through two rounds of such intense suffering when he had done nothing to deserve that in his mind. And God agreed. Job said as much to his friends when they came to comfort him. Job pointed out to his friends that, you know what, there's really no point in trying to be a righteous person if righteous people are going to get this as their reward, this kind of treatment from God. If God's in the habit of repaying righteousness like this, then what's the point of being righteous? In the end, God spoke with Job and marveled that Job was attempting to defend himself by accusing God of doing the wrong thing, when in fact God never does the wrong thing in our lives. And that's what God pointed out to Job in response to Job's complaint against God. God reminded Job that he was sovereign in Job's life and in the universe, and that he was within his rights in doing what he had done to Job. God had violated Job's rights, but God was within his rights when he did that, because he is the sovereign of the universe. By the end of the story, Job came back to the confidence that God was indeed sovereign in his life and that God was free to do whatever God wanted to do in Job's life without consulting Job. Remarkably, God didn't explain to Job why all that trouble had come into his life. He never did explain to Job about the the intergalactic chess tournament that was going on between him and Satan. God simply told Job that he, God, was the one who knew best. Job accepted that. 
Job persevered in his faith in God and held on to what he believed despite Satan's blitzkrieg in his life. In the end, God blessed Job by giving him back twice as much as he had originally had. So it's natural that James should use the perseverance of Job as he begins to bring his epistle to an end. James began his epistle by telling us something that we all marveled at when he first said it, that we should react with pure joy whenever we face multiple trials of many kinds. And now here at the end of this letter from James, he'll explain to us one more time why we should defer to God and respond with pure joy when multiple severe trials invade our lives. As he draws this letter to a close, James will help us to understand some of the things that that God may be seeking to accomplish in our lives when we're in pain because of trials and difficulties. In the end, we realize that the only thing that makes sense in our lives... Okay? And and the, the only thing that makes sense in our lives is to say yes... Oops, you know, that's my fault. <laughs> yes, there we go. It's just, yes, Lord, thank you for that trial there. I know you're sovereign. The only thing that makes sense in our lives is to say yes to, to the Lord. Yes to God. Whenever he asks us to go through uh, any kind of difficulty, to put his kingdom first in our lives, to have that as our priority instead of our own personal comfort. And remember, we don't have to promise to be good or, uh, for the rest of our lives. We just have to say yes to saying yes to God when he asks us to do something. Like that old song, I'll say yes, Lord, yes. You, you remember singing that at one time or another. To your will and to your way, I'll say yes, Lord, yes. I will trust you and obey. When your spirit speaks to me with my whole heart, I'll agree. And my answer will be yes, Lord, yes. That's all that God's looking for in your life. He's not looking for promises or guarantees that you'll never stray, never ever stray again in your life. He just wants you to say yes to him on a moment-by-moment basis, no matter what's going on in your life. And we have his promise that if we're willing to sacrifice, and this is so cool, if we're willing to sacrifice to advance his kingdom and do his will, he'll reward us beyond our, our, our brightest imagination, we cannot begin to imagine what he's prepared in terms of rewards for people like us who are willing to slog it out through the midst of the pain and the difficulties and simply respond to him with pure joy as we say yes to his will. Well, it's time to move on to the penultimate passage here in James, and, and we always do that by standing together to read the passage we'll be unpacking. So if you will, stand with me. As we, as we read James chapter 5, verses 13 to 18 aloud. I hope you can see that. If you can't, strain your eyes. Um, 13 to 18, read it with me. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. 
Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Thank you. You can take your seats confident in the knowledge that, that God always blesses us with his truth whenever we read his word. Last week, the story from God's Word was chosen by the text itself because, as we mentioned, uh, James mentioned Job, and, and we considered the story of Job last week. And this week, well, once again, the text, James has chosen the story that I'll tell from God's Word. Maybe you noticed that James took for granted there that we know the story of Elijah, uh, the, you, know, the, the, you know, that time that he prayed for a, dr a drought and uh, and, and then that lasted three and a half years, and then he prayed again, and the drought ended. And uh, in this passage this morning, James is going to make reference, put special reference on that prayer of James uh, at the beginning and the end of the drought. We don't know much about the prayer at the beginning, at least it's not recorded in the story itself, but we do know something about how in earnestly, how intensely Job prayed at the end of the drought when the rains resumed. And so I'll just kind of give you some background on the beginning of the story and then bring you up to speed on the prayer at the end of the story, if that's okay. As I tell the story, pay close attention to the intensity with which Elijah prayed as he spoke to God about the rain. And with that background, this is the story from God's Word from 1 Kings chapter 16, 17, and 18. And you can feel free to check me for accuracy there if that helps you. A man named Ahab had become the king of Israel and he reigned in his capital in Samaria, not in Jerusalem, for 22 years. Ahab was a truly evil man who did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of the kings that had preceded him. He married an evil woman named Jezebel, who was a worshiper of the false god Baal. Ahab was an Israelite, but he joined his wife in worshiping Baal in a temple that he himself had built there in Samaria. The scripture says that Ahab did more to arouse the anger of the Lord than all of the kings of Israel who reigned before him. The prophet Elijah had been praying for the people of Israel, and in response to that prayer, God sent Elijah into the throne room of King Ahab. Elijah confronted Ahab there in the throne room and said, The Lord, the God of, of Israel, is truly alive, and it is just as true that I am his servant and that I speak for him. And I am telling you truthfully that there will be neither dew nor rain during the next few years. In fact, there will be no rain until I say that there will be rain. Having said that, he spun on his heel, walked out of the presence of the king, and disappeared. God told Elijah to hide in a place where King Ahab couldn't find him, even though Ahab and his cohorts spent the next three, more than three years looking for Elijah, hunting him down in various places. And at the end of that time, God told Elijah to confront Ahab once again. So Elijah told Ahab and, and Jezebel and all of the prophets of Baal to meet him on Mount Carmel for one massive, miraculous confrontation. It'd be worth your while, I'll just parenthetically say this, it would be worth your while when you get home to open your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 18 and read the story of that, that, uh, that confrontation that, that, that took place. But I'm going to skip over that. 
After Elijah had defeated the prophets of Baal there on the side of Mount Carmel, Elijah told Ahab to go get something to eat because the rains would be coming soon. In the meantime, Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel and knelt on the ground, knelt on the ground with both of his palms on either side of his head and his palms and his face in the dirt. Elijah prayed earnestly and intensely that God would send rain. And then he turned to his servant and said, go and look toward the sea and tell me what you see on the horizon. The servant came back and looked and he looked and came back and, and said to Elijah, I see nothing on the horizon. So Elijah prayed the second time, just as earnestly and just as intensely in the same position and then asked his servant to check again, but there was still nothing on the horizon. Elijah prayed a third and a fourth time with the same intensity and his, his servant reported that there was still nothing on the horizon. So Elijah prayed a fifth and a sixth time with the same intensity and the same result. When Elijah sent his servant to check the horizon after he had prayed the seventh time, his servant came back and he said, there's a cloud about the size of my hand when I stretch out my arm like that. It's, it's out there on the horizon. So Elijah said to his servant, go tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and hurry down off the mountain before the rain stops you. The servant brought that word to Ahab, and moments later, the rain began to pour down in torrents. And that's the story from God's Word. If you're familiar with this part of the story of Elijah's life, then you may feel that I, I left out the best parts of the story. And I admit, I, I, left, I did leave out the most dynamic parts of that story, the parts that are the most fun to tell, but I wanted you to see primarily two things, the intensity of Elijah's prayer and the results of his prayer. In terms of intensity, Elijah made a request of God, a single request of God that the rains would start. But his request wasn't simply something that he tacked onto the end of his prayer when he asked a blessing for the meal. I don't know how often you've done that. I know I've done that. Oh, yeah, God, thanks for the food. And, ah, oh, I forgot to mention earlier that that's not something that Elijah did. He prayed with intensity, with his face to the ground seven times, making the same request of God each time. In terms of results, God responded to Elijah's first prayer by stopping the rain. There are a few things in nature. I mean, he prayed seven times, but that was the only prayer. That was the only request that he had. There are a few things in nature that are more natural than the rain, but when Elijah prayed, the rain and the dew stopped for three and a half years. It's important that we see the, the intensity and results of Elijah's prayer this morning because James is going to talk to us about how we should be praying for one another. I've had a lot of friends over the years, and, and some of them have been as close to fa as family to me, while others have found a way to keep their distance one way or the other. But I had a friend several years ago who would often interact with me, as, as friends do, and I noticed over my, the time that I knew him that we never really had a conversation that wasn't about something that he needed from me. <laughs> every time we'd have a conversation, every time we'd talk, he'd tell me about what he needed from me right now. Got to the place after a while where I kind of dreaded seeing him coming towards me. 
because I knew that by the end of our conversation, I'd be obligated to help him in some, some way. And I have to say that that's what friends are for, right? A true friend stands beside you when you're in need and helps in any way that he or she can, but it can be tiresome when you're in a relationship with someone uh, with someone else, and, and that relationship is built entirely on what that other person needs from you. But I'm still thankful for his friendship, because in the end, God used that guy in my life to teach me about my prayer life. God showed me that, that, by the, that, that I was relating to him, to God, in, in exactly the same way that that friend of mine was relating to me. My conversations with God were all about what I wanted and needed, but I never really took the time to be thankful other than the one day of the year that we set aside for that purpose. But look what, what James says in verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. If you have troubles, take them to God by all means. Don't hold off at all. He loves it when we bring our troubles. He loves it when we're a mess that he, so that he can reach into our lives and teach us things and, and sustain us. But don't forget to praise. And don't forget to enjoy the relationship that you have with him along the way. And I can, I can hear some people saying now, not any you, of course, but I can hear some people saying now, don't that say that we're supposed to praise when we're happy? Yeah. Well, I ain't never happy. <laughs> you know, I just have needs, and, and I, that's why I never praise God for that stuff. But that's a whole nother problem, isn't it? Especially when we've been interacting with James, who for you know, almost the entire year, the better part of a year now, has been telling us to respond with pure joy when we face trials and troubles on every side. By all means, Tell God what you need and, and ask Him to meet those needs, but make sure that your prayers are always made up of more praise than requests. Please, more praise than requests when you come into His presence. Honor His name when you come into, your, into His presence. And ask, them to, ask Him that He would provide for His name to be honored every place on the planet. And then as you begin to wind down, start talking to Him about the things that you need. When we bring our needs to Him, that is a form of worship, but it's only part of the worship that we bring to Him. And that brings us face-to-face. -face. Those thoughts bring us face-to-face -face with the stickiest passage in James, or at least one of the stickiest passages in James. As we get into this passage, I want to remind you that the core thing that James is talking about right now is prayer. He's just said that if we're in trouble, we should pray. And if we're happy, we should praise. I'll let you decide how you're going to spend the next time that you have with God in prayer. Now, James is going to unpack this idea of trouble a little more as he takes up the subject of sickness and what we should do when we're sick. But as we get into the passage, it's important that we understand that there's more than one kind of sickness. Over the last couple of years, we have been completely preoccupied with a sickness, an illness, a plague that swept the globe. Now, I, I know, I, I know as, as surely I, as I know anything, I, I, I'm about to ask you to raise your hand to something, and I just want you to know that I know that there are, there are three of you out there, th thank God for you, there are three of you out there who are going to raise their hand uh, no matter what I say, and I, I so appreciate that, 
And I also know that there are 203 of you out there who are not going to raise your hands, no matter what I say. But I'm still going to give this a shot, okay? Let's just, just work with me if you'd be so kind. Would you raise your hand if you have been sick with COVID? I've been sick with COVID. Raise your hand if you've been sick with COVID. Okay, some of you here. Okay, you can put your hands down. Okay, now raise your hand if you're sick of COVID. I'm sick of COVID. <laughs> All the, well, man, that was like 203 hands. That was pretty cool. We, we make a difference between sick with something and sick of something. And I think we can all agree that even if we haven't been sick with COVID, we are certainly sick of COVID by this time in our lives. When we pray, play with prepositions like that, with, you know, with and of, we're playing with a nuance in meaning. And James is about to dance with both of those nuances of the meaning of the word sick. So I hope you'll stay with me. We all know that we can be physically sick, but I think we'd also say that there have been times when we've been emotionally sick and even spiritually sick. And we all know that sometimes we're just heart sick. We're just heart sick. I think we'd also agree that there's such a thing as soul sickness and even sin sickness. And we also know that one kind of sickness can lead to another. Physical sickness can lead to heart sickness, to making your heart sick. And heart sickness can lead to physical sickness sickness if it goes on long enough. And I'm no Greek scholar, but I can tell you that Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament, does all of those same things with the word for sick. And with the idea of nuance of meaning in mind, now would you look at what James says in verses 14 and 15? Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Now, before we go any further, let me say that I know that there are Bible teachers who, who say that this passage means that if you are sick and if you call the elders to anoint you with oil and pray for you, God will always heal you no matter what sickness you may have. I've heard this passage taught that way. I'd like to say that that's a wonderful thing to believe, but I just haven't seen it work out too often in actual practice, even though I have often been the elder who has been sent for to pray for someone who's sick. In other churches where I've been an elder, sometimes at the end of church, people would come to me and say, would you come and pray for my grandma because she's sick? And I'd always say, you don't want me to pray for your grandma. You, you just don't. She's going to die if I pray for her. You know, that's just the way. That, that was, it was this feeling, this angst that I lived with all the time. Now, without doing any extended hermeneutic or exegetical dance, I just want to say that I believe that James is speaking of sickness in the broader sense here that we've been talking about instead of only talking about physical sickness. There are several reasons why I believe that, and if you'd like to have a more extensive private conversation, discussion about this, uh, we can talk about the words that James uses here for anoint and sick. There are differences, but... But in the, and, and I would hope that that would put your minds at ease. But let, let me just say that there are two different words that James uses that are translated sick here in this passage. The Greek word for sick in verse 14, you can see it just turned yellow there. The Greek word for sick in verse 14 is used many times, many, many times in the New Testament. And sometimes it means physical sickness, and that, that, that's mostly true in the Gospels. 
Other times, it means heart sickness. And that's mostly true in the epistles. I think that James is talking about heart sickness in verse 14 because of the word he uses for sick in verse 15. You can see it there. It just turned yellow instead. That Greek word that James uses for, that's translated sick there is used only twice in the New Testament. Once here in James and the other one is in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 3 where it says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Those words grow weary are actually the same word. Uh, the word that's translated grow weary in Hebrews 12, 3 and the word that's translated sick in James chapter 5, verse 15 are the same word. I think that James is primarily talking about heart sickness here, as he, in, here in chapter 5, but we don't need to limit it to that. So if you're sick, and if you're sick of being sick, then call the elders and ask them to pray for you. Because we're not going to tell God how to do his job at all. And if he wants to heal you of your physical sickness because the elders have prayed for you, that would be amazing. But, but we also want to give God an opportunity to heal your heart sickness along the way. And raise your spirit so that you can experience the joy that James has been talking to us about for nearly a year. Having said that, I have to say that the primary reason that I believe that James is talking about heart sickness and spiritual sickness in this passage is because of what he'll say next. You see, I don't believe that James is changing the subject as he moves into the next part of the passage and uses those words. He says there, if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. I don't believe he's changing the subject. In the context of sickness and seeking healing from the elders, James brings up the possibility that the person who is sick has sinned. It's right there in the text. Now, let's be really clear. Let's be really clear. I will stand and balance on the pulpit if it helps as I say this. Let's be really clear. We are not saying that all sickness is the result of sin. We're not saying that. Uh, we're saying that if you've been sick for a while and you're aware of a habitual sin in your life, there may be a connection. You repeat that. I'm not saying that if you're sick today, it's because you've sinned. I'm saying that if you're sick today, and you're aware of a habitual sin in your life, there may be a connection. You see, we're not designed to thrive in the midst of hiding habitual sin. And that's why James talks, of, and that's what, why James talks about this to tell you and me to, to get our sin out in the open. He calls on us to get our sin out in the open. We'll see that in a minute. While the sin is still small, before it destroys our lives and the lives of those around us. Several years ago, our family was living at the flight and school base uh, in Aritao in the province of Nueva Vizcaya on the island of Luzon in the Philippines, which is over there in Asia. We were surrounded by several other expat families on that flight and school base from the U.S., from England, from Australia. And there was a man living there on the flight base with his family, a man that I considered to be a good friend. We had a television and a VHS player at our house, and, and he and I wrote to our friends in the U.S. and asked them to tape football games, you know, back when you would put the VHS tape in there, we asked them to tape football games and send us the tapes. And he and I would then get together on Monday evening and, and watch a football game. 
The games were all old, but hey, it was football over there in the Philippines. During the game, we'd talk about stuff that was trivial and just joke around and tr trash talk, depending on what teams were playing. And other times, we'd talk about things that were important. Sometimes we'd even pause the game because of the intense conversation that we were having. That was how we spent Monday evenings until one day when the leadership team came up from Manila to the flight base and began to have some very intensive meetings with my friend that went on for a day and a half. The end of that time, we were told that my friend and his family would be going back to the States. And without telling me what had happened, the leadership team asked me to make sure that he and his family made their way from Aritao by bus down to Manila. I'll never forget the moment when I borrowed one of the, the, the base vehicles and, and drove over to their house to help them load up their stuff so that I could drive them down off the hill to the highway where they could catch a bus. I've been around an awful lot of death and loss in my years in ministry, but I can tell you that I've never seen a more broken family than that family that morning. The kids were all crying and his wife was weeping, but he seemed to be unnervingly calm. We loaded their stuff. I drove them down to the highway and we waited for the bus. And as the bus approached from around that long curve from a distance, I, I hugged him and, and then I... I hugged all his kids and finally his wife. And when I hugged his wife, I said, don't worry. It'll be okay. I knew that it was a stupid thing to say, but it was all I had to offer. But it was her response that chilled me to the bone. No, she said, it will never be okay. They returned to the States and he started into counseling, but later walked away from that and left his wife and his family to fend for themselves. And not too long after that, his wife died of a massive heart attack. But I believe she died of a broken heart. I had responsibilities for all of Asia during that time. So in the weeks that after they left, the leadership in Manila called me down to the offices there to tell me what he had done. And I don't want to bring it up on a, from the pulpit on a Sunday morning, but I, I do want to say that his sinful choices destroyed many, many lives. The entire situation was heartbreaking. But what I find most painful and troubling is that that sin that destroyed so many lives was growing in my friend's heart all during the time that I knew him, and he said nothing. While it was still a small desire, he could have brought it up and and worked through it before it did all that damage. But he chose instead to hide his sinful desires until they had grown into a sinful habit, until they had grown to the point where there was nothing but death and destruction in his life. Listen to me. You cannot prevent what you don't confront. So is it any wonder that James says what he says in verse 16? Therefore, confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I don't know what you have going on in your lives today, but, but please know that sin always has a blast radius. Sin always has a blast radius. Hidden sin will eventually destroy us and everyone who is nearest and dearest to us. So don't 
hide your sin. Instead, get help before it's too late. We'll have more to say about this next week when we look at the last bit of advice that we'll get from James. But for right now, I don't want to leave you in such a dark place on this beautiful Sunday morning. Several years ago, I was speaking at a chapel service to several hundred people in in Papua New Guinea. We were meeting in a large gymnasium that was covered with an uninsulated tin roof. And as I got up to speak, a torrential tropical downpour began. The sound of that torrential rain on that tin roof was deafening. And I, I, I literally couldn't hear myself as I spoke, no matter how much I raised my voice. There was a microphone and an amplifier and huge speakers in the auditorium, and I shouted into the mic, and as I did that, I paused often to ask people if they could hear me, because I I literally couldn't hear myself. They kept nodding their heads and assuring me every time that I asked that question that they could hear me. I chose to speak on this passage from James about the need that we all have for accountability as followers of Jesus. And just like I did this morning, I chose to tell the story of Elijah and his rain-stopping and rain-starting prayers. I wanted to help them to understand how incredibly effective we can be in one another's lives if we learn to earnestly pray for one another. I shouted the whole story into the microphone the entire time. And I placed special emphasis on how Elijah... Can you hear me? special emphasis on how Elijah had prayed at the, at the end of the story, and, and that's what ended the drought. And then I summed up the story by shouting that Elijah had prayed earnestly to start the rain at the end of the story, and we know that at the beginning of the story, Elijah had prayed just as earnestly, and the rain stopped. And you can choose to believe it or this or not, but the very second that I shouted that Elijah prayed and the rain stopped, The rain literally stopped. I don't mean it, you know, it just went off to a trickle or just started sprinkling on. I mean, it stopped like God himself had turned off the hose that was pointed at the roof. I mean, the thing that was pumping out the rain. The audience, (laughs) the audience gasped. I mean, it it was so fun to watch. They gasped and they looked up at the roof and then they looked down at me, and then they looked up at the roof, and they looked down at me, and they kept doing that. And, uh, and I could tell that they were all thinking the same thing. That was an awesome illustration. But I wonder how he did that. Now, that's a simple story that may not be enough to prove to some people that there is a God, but for me, I already knew that there is a God, so that moment proved to me... <laughs> that God has a great sense of humor. He really, truly does. I believe he was there that morning and just playing with all of our hearts as we took on this passage. James has written to us that we should pray for one another, that we should confess our sins and weaknesses to one another and pray for one another so that we can be healed. That's what he said. And in that light, look at verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Look at that word, earnestly. We don't have any record of how Elijah, as I mentioned earlier, we don't have any record how he prayed at the beginning of the drought, but we do know that at the end of the drought, Elijah prayed kneeling with his face on the ground, 
Seven times. He prayed seven times as he asked God to restore the rain. And that's the example that James uses when he says that we should pray for one another. Do you pray for one another with that kind of intensity? With that kind of passion? Asking God to help your brothers and sisters in Christ to avoid the things that have killed so many families, that have destroyed so many ministries and lives? Elijah was a human being, and he prayed earnestly. And after he prayed seven times, something as natural as the rain stopped for more than three years. James has been telling us that when we have some natural, habitual sin going on in our lives, that habitual, natural sin can grow to the point where it destroys our lives and the lives of, the, of those who find themselves in the blast zone of our lives. But, but if we take the time to be vulnerable and confess that sin to our brother or sister in Christ and they hold us accountable and pray earnestly for us, then that can put a stop to that natural sin before it destroys us and those that we love. Think about it. If something as natural as the rain can stop for three years because of prayer, then something as natural as sin can stop for three years and more in your life and mine if we're willing to be honest with one another and pray for one another. And I have to ask you this morning, what's that make you want to do? Tell you what it makes me want to do. It makes me want to be more open with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It makes me want to be more vulnerable. It makes me want to have others hold me accountable. It makes me want to be open with others who will earnestly pray for me so that I can be free of the sin that will soon destroy me and the ones I love. I want to confess and deal with my sin in my life before it explodes and takes me down and everyone else in the blast zone. Let's pursue our own healing by being open about our heart sickness and our sin sickness and then praying for one another earnestly on our knees with our face to the ground seven times if that's what it takes to help one another recover. Next week we'll talk more about the good that we can do for one another as we're open with each other. But for now, let me read this morning's passage to you as we bring this to a close. Is any one of you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer in faith, offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So, what does that make you want to do? Will you stand with me in the presence? Father and our God, we bless your name today for the, the care that you take in all of our lives. God, we, we learned last week that you took down Job even though he didn't deserve it because there was no hidden habitual sin in his life. 
your sovereign Lord, and, and you, you're well within your rights whenever you bring calamity even into our lives. We've seen this week, God, that sometimes sickness and accompanies habitual sin that we've hidden. And, and God, if that's the case for any of us, I pray that you would give us the courage that we need to reach out to other people and just share with them what's going on before an explosion takes place that destroys us and our families and those that we love. God, I pray especially in this regard for me because I know all of these people here this morning are in that blast radius. And God, I pray that you keep my heart free of habitual sin as I'm willing to be honest with others about what's going on. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. And I pray, God, that you would sweep through our church and clean us up and help us to be more honest about the things that trouble us for the sake of your glory and for the good of those that we love, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Different assignment this week than we typically have. We're going to head out those doors. And, and I'm hoping that if God spoke to you about something in your life that's going on in your life, that you sat for a moment and thought about who can I talk to about this. Find somebody that you trust, somebody that you know is going to pray, and spend that time with them and just say, here's where I am, here's what's going on. I feel really vulnerable right now, but I know that you're going to stand behind me and support me as we go. Because if the rain, something as natural as the rain can stop, then something as natural as this thing that's going on in your life or mine can stop as well. So we're going to head out those doors, and we're going to get real this week. More real, perhaps, than we've ever been before. As your coach, I'm standing up here with my last responsibility for the morning, and I'm going to say, ready? ready. Go get him, Potter's house. <laughs>